Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This time it's two men's view of the changing times, the changing world, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 7th, 2009. It is a Monday. It is also uh, Labor Day. I am taking the day off, but this Saturday I did a show with James Talmadge Stevens on Blog Talk Radio where we spent about an hour together live answering questions and taking questions out of the chat room and discussing preparedness. James has been in the preparedness industry since 1973, I believe. He's the author of Making the Best of Basics, the best-selling book ever on the preparedness uh, industry and uh, selling well over uh, three-quarters of a million copies. I actually believe it's over 800,000 copies. The latest edition is coming out now. You'll hear how to buy it in the broadcast. But as I'm taking today off, James has given me permission, and I am grateful for that permission, to rebroadcast our show from Saturday as uh, the survival podcast for Monday today while I'm off, so you won't go a day without a show. Even if you tuned in live and listened this weekend, thank you for joining us, but James and I continued on for about another half hour. So if you've already heard the first hour of the show, you might even uh, fast forward past the 60-minute mark and listen to the off-air stuff between James and I. You'll get an awful lot of information from that as well. And with that, I'll go ahead and sign off, and uh, thank you for tuning in not only to my show, but today for tuning into the uh, James Talmadge Stevens Show, Family Preparedness Radio, and hopefully this little mix-up here will uh, keep things going for you, and I really hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon. You are listening to the 15th edition of the Family Preparedness Guide talk show. I'm your host, James Talmadge Stevens, and I'm the author of Making the Best of Basics, Family Preparedness Handbook. Today's date is Saturday, uh, September the 5th. It's Saturday, of course, uh, September 5th, 2009. And I thank each and every one of you joining the show. We have a special guest today. I'll introduce him in just a moment. And I know many of you are already waiting in the chat room and online to hear him, and I appreciate uh, your call. Let's really put him to, to work today. I'm broadcasting from Gray Forest, Texas. We're live, and... Uh, that's a small Texas Hill country town just outside San Antonio, Texas. And we plan to be here every Saturday about 1 o'clock uh, Central Time. Right now it's Central Daylight Savings Time, but soon that will go away. We're going to talk about family preparedness, news and views. And there will be some disparate ones, and there will be some ones that are right on the party line. It doesn't matter. We want to hear various opinions, because certainly those among you have varying opinions. Um, I do have a blog site I'd like to steer you to. It's familypreparednessguide.com, and I blog mostly days. During the last month, uh, August was not a good time. I was finishing up the book. I had some inquiries already. Uh, The book will be out in a couple of weeks. Get your copy of the new book. It's about 500 and some pages, by the way. It's double in size. The yellow pages are online. If you'll go to Jack uh, Spierko's uh, website, thesurvivalpodcast.com, that's thesurvivalpodcast.com, and get your copy. 
on the front page of on his home page, you call it front page. There's a there's a little uh, place to click that says books. You'll go there, click on that, and on the next page, up on the book list in the upper left hand corner, is uh, he's uh, put my book up at the top, so you can find it. Uh, just click on the link, buy the book through Jack, support his program. It'll help him help you and help him stay there for you. So do that. Buy the book through Jack, but please buy the book. Now, let's talk about um, other places. You're looking for preparedness products. Go to the preparedness yellow pages. We have a free listing there for people to look, search and to for vendors to put their information. And at preparednessyellowpages.com, you can find products you're seeking. I don't sell products. I only sell the book. I stay out of the controversy. That way I can talk about anybody's product any way I want to. gives me the freedom to do that. Well, the Family Preparedness Guide talk show is really about family preparedness issues. That's a really broad range of subjects to cover. So we'll try to proceed at your pace. The faster, the more questions you ask, the faster, the more we'll say. We're here to answer your questions and help bring you peace of mind because that, as Jack has explicated in many of his uh, podcast, peace of mind comes from knowledge and the application of that knowledge. So we don't really want to get into the battles about politics and other things. If you insist, we'll talk about it. I'm not going to do it from my point of view because I want to tell you how to be prepared in spite of all that stuff. Our our mantra or credo, if you will, is that if you're truly prepared, there's no need to fear. And so what we try to do is teach you what to do, explain to you what to do, so that really it doesn't matter what causes the need, you will be properly prepared. So whether you're a survivalist, a preparedness person, a self-reliance advocate, whatever you call yourself, prepper is a new word, we're providing information to help you get prepared. We have a great show today. I have Jack Skirpo. He's the... Um, I can't call him moderator. He's certainly not moderate. He's highly advanced. He is totally enthusiastic, and I would call him bombastic compared to me at my age. He's probably half my age, but the point is he's done over 250 sessions or more maybe by now. Uh, if he can get confused, so can I. Uh, he has a number of those uh, shows. He's been doing it for a long time, and he's really good at it. He has a tremendous following. He is the number one Internet podcast show for preparedness. Uh, no question about it. He has a, I would say, spectacularly popular show. I listen to his show, and for a moderate that I am, a conservative that I am, you got to understand that I don't even have to reach. He speaks to me. I hear what he says as he speaks to you. So whether you're listening, whether he's talking about the miscreants in our public offices or the people who are trying to change our country without asking us, he can really get into that stuff, and he does it well. His mantra is helping you live the life you want if times get tough or if they don't. I love that. It's so appropriate. So today, welcome, Jack. Welcome to the Family Preparedness Guide. Good to have you. Hey, James. Thanks for having me on again. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here. Good. Well, you just came back from Dirt 09, as you call it. Tell us about because nobody really knows what that is. It's an inside secret. Let us in on it. Yeah, Dirt Time 09 is, uh, I, I guess it's really a combined effort um, from the folks at Wilderness Way magazine and, and a, really a lot of input from the folks that are uh, big fans of Ron Hood, who, of course, has been teaching 
uh, Wilderness Survival, um, and he has a forum at survival.com uh, called The Hoodlums. And uh, those guys worked together to put that event on, and I was invited to go out there and speak this year. And uh, we had it in the middle of the San Bernardino National Forest in uh, California, and it was absolutely phenomenal. We had about, uh, I think there's about 15 speakers um, and about 100-plus guests. Uh, so it was a pretty big gathering. It's the biggest gathering of its kind that I know of anyway. And uh, it mainly focused on wilderness survival skills, things like how to start a fire. Uh, Chris Nidges, a good friend of yours, was out there. He was teaching us how to identify different plants uh, for foraging purposes and all. And I spoke on uh, survival gardening and permaculture, which was fun because it was a little bit different than what everybody else was doing. But I, I guess the biggest thing I can tell people after being out there is when you get an opportunity to go to any kind of an event, if it's a couple dozen people or a couple hundred people, in this, this kind of world, this world of preparedness and, and, and primitive skills and survivalism and all these things that we like to talk about, go. Because it changes everything about the way you look at other people out there, their opinions and what they bring to the table. It's great that we can form relationships on the Internet today. I have people uh, that I've had you know, multi-year relationships with that I've never saw face-to-face -face or pressed hands with I consider friends, but it's different when you get out there and you get to talk to them, you get to meet them, and you get to see you know, what they're doing and what they're learning and what they can teach you and what you can teach them. And for me, as someone that's been doing a show, to, to meet all of these people, and there was – I guess there had to be about 30 or 40 folks out of the group that were regular listeners of my show, and to be able to talk to them and actually hear about the things that they're changing in their life uh, because of the things that you know that we're doing online, uh, it was a really, really seminal moment for me, and it's really got me motivated. I, I kind of have two lives I live right now, one in the you know corporate world and one's my podcast and my site and everything that I do, and I've been trying to get into a point where – I can give the preparedness industry 100% of my time, and it's just kind of give me a shot of steroids up the butt to make sure that that happens uh, because uh, it's one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had. Well, it's a fairly exclusive group. They don't. It's not open to 10,000 people. It's fairly select, isn't it? It is. I mean, these are the uh, leaders. They do, of advertise, the it. They do advertise in Wilderness Way magazine, so it's, it's it's kind of a select group on who they bring in as speakers. I think anybody can basically attend. If you know about it, and if you uh, if you reserve your slot, they 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 hold the reservations to a hundred people. Right. And okay. as soon as it hits a hundred on the attendees, it's done. They close it down, and they sell out three or four months early every year. Yeah, it was great. I uh, and I know some of the people who run it, so it's great. And and they are the leaders of the leaders, in my opinion. They're the people who on whom whose shoulders we've kind of built the preparedness industry. I'm tickled that you're part of that. That's that's tremendous, Jack. Yeah, it was cool, and it was it was just neat to be out there with. I mean, some of the people that that I was out there with that were were teaching, Alan Hulkin and Dune McLean from uh, Wilderness Way, of course, Chris Nidges, um, Ron Hood, who's an icon in the industry, uh, Master Master Gunnery Sergeant Scott Anderson from the Marine Corps was out there teaching ham radio communications, and um, for me, as early as I am in, in kind of my career in, in doing this stuff and, and trying to help people. Uh, to be associated with those folks is uh, is a bit humbling. Great. Well, you do such a good job. So you're you're a high visibility person compared to some of them. They've been doing their 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 shtick for a long time, but they're just not as well known in the public as you are. Of course, those of those of you who are capable with the internet and with electronics and able to deal with all the sophistry of software are, are in a different world from those of us who grew up 
uh, got their master's, their MBA with a slide rule, for heaven's sake. That's how far back mine goes. So it's a whole different world and a different mindset today. Jack, this past week, you had after the show, I did see a change in the tenor of the way you talk about preparedness, and and, and you know that. You just mentioned a while ago that you, you had a different, kind of a different purview of things. One thing this past week that really got my attention uh, when I listened to it was uh, your, your, I think it was Thursday when you had the, the 10, the, your, your 10 business, your 10 decision, uh, your 10 questions for model decision making, I guess that's the way to say it. Your model for decision making business is the same that you, and you applied it to some other applications. Uh, I thought that was really quite a sterling uh, 30 minutes of my time, and I, I wrote, actually wrote notes. I went back and uh, through it the second time to get those ten items, and I know you've done several things, but uh, uh, people are asking. Let me ask one question, uh, and you mentioned it in your show. It's about the swine flu. Uh, you weren't really hot that it's a reality. That's okay. I'm not sure it is either. I wasn't sure about Y2K, but people kept buying my books, so I kept printing them. Yeah. Uh, not that I took advantage of it, but people want to know to be prepared. It had a timeline. It had a date. As of a certain date, it was the end of the beans, uh, so to speak. Um, right now, the fiscal things are running the same way. Uh, the flu thing is running the same way, but we don't have a definitive date. What's yeah. your take on that? Here, here's my take on this. And uh, a guy with a uh, with a nurse that's been in pediatric nursing for 25 years, I I get maybe a different view into what's actually going on and how deadly or not so deadly this thing's actually become. Uh, one of my biggest fears as a prepper in general, when I look at causative factors, is pandemic. It's always been that way. Nothing's changed. I just don't think it's this one. Now, the, the other side of that coin, though, and this is what I think people need to be vigilant with right now, is, is as you and I have discussed before, it is never the disaster that is the biggest problem in an emergency situation. It is the response that people have to it and uh, the response sometimes the government has to it. And I think in this case, the flu itself is just not something to get you, you know, say in old colloquialism, your panties in a wad over. It's, uh, it's a flu. Uh, people get it. They get sick. They get better. Some very small portion of them die from it. Well, some very small portion of people die from, you know, the common cold. We're talking less than 1% here. Uh, so I'm not worried about the disease itself at this point. And uh, so to me, when it first came out, I wasn't ready to just rule it out. And so we got to take a look at this thing and see what it's really all about. I think we've had time to do that now. It, it appears to be nothing more than uh, just another variety of flu. Uh, I do have a lot of people concerned that maybe, you know, the kind of the black helicopter people or the tinfoil hat people I call them, that they're going to try to show up at your house and, and force a vaccination on you. And I, I just, folks, I just don't think that's coming because let's say I wanted to just flip a switch and say I'm going to be evil overlord right now and I want to get as many people vaccinated with something that they don't want to be vaccinated with as possible. last thing I'm going to do is try to force it on them. I'm going to say I have a limited supply and people will fight for it. I don't right. even think that's going to go on. I think the government is demonstrating its typical ineptness and incompetence and overreacting because they'd rather overreact and have nothing happen than underreact and have something happen and then be asked, why didn't you do something, right? So right. Th that's what they're doing. Now, for me personally, um, if you ask me, is Jack Spirico getting an H1N1 uh, flu vaccination this year? Absolutely not. I'm not doing it. Now, the reason I'm not doing it, though, is I don't believe there's any evil conspiracy. There's no special group of Illuminati meeting to determine H. Jack Spirico with the flu vaccination. I just think that they've, they've jumped the gun. 
They've gone too fast. They haven't put the general, you know, um, safety guidelines that they put into when they when they create a new vaccine. And when they do that, they make mistakes. And I would rather – I believe that the risk from the vaccination – this is me personally. People can do whatever they want. For me personally, the risk that they've screwed something up by rushing this outweighs the risk of me dying from a garden variety type of flu. So that's – to me, just step back, do the things that you've always done. We never know when the real pandemic is coming. It could be this one. It could be 10 years from now. It could be 100 years from now. Stick to commonality of disaster. Stick to your preps. And uh, when everybody starts running around like chickens with their heads cut off, step out of the way and let them run their, run their timeline out. Well, I, I think that's an accurate way of saying it. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I wasn't really sure about Y2K. <clears throat> But people need an excuse to get prepared if they need a stimulus, if you will, yes. or a motivation. Anything will do if it works and helps people get prepared. You know, I can I can go with it. I try not to make it a big issue. I am blogging right now about from a gal who's really good at this, who brings a lot of stuff in, and I give people the information. It is a causative factor, but if it helps people make that prep step, I think it's worth it. And uh uh, I mean, if you not, want to look at it that way, James, part of what we can look at is it's a new flu strain. That's it, correct. It, it's not de- it doesn't appear to be any more deadly than a typical flu, but it could have been. <clears throat> so it's well, a good wake-up call. And I got a lot of emails when this thing first broke before we got a good look at it from people that considered themselves preppers that were freaking out a little bit because it was a wake-up call, and it made them ask the question, have I been doing enough? So from that standpoint, I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's kind of a good thing. Because I think a lot of people lull themselves into a false sense of security because maybe they have 30 days of food laid up. And they look at it and they go, well, I'm more prepared than my neighbor. But if we get into a true shit hit the fan, it's not whether you're more prepared than your neighbor. It's are you prepared enough to deal with the situation. Well, I think most people don't know what to do. And it's the skies falling syndrome. We, we want to stay away from that. Um, I don't think the government's given us enough information that we've made a decision. They just want us to get the shot. I'm yeah. always curious as, as they know which strain is coming. I've never quite figured that one out. I don't go with the conspiracy stuff, but it is curious at, at best. Tell, now, you, you, you're making decisions. You're telling people you decided. I really like your decision model. You want to talk about that for a minute and explain to people how, how you go about decision-making on these things? Because people yeah. need to make better decisions. I, what you're talking about mostly is, you know, doing a show on preparedness and survivalism and, and, and uh, self-sufficiency, it attracts a lot of people with, with some level of political bent. So I try to give my audience what it wants, and I do five shows a week. So I've got to talk about a variety of subjects just to keep things going without being repetitive. So I do go into politics once in a while, and uh, it, it's funny. I get people that think that I'm like a complete extreme right-wing conservative, and then I get other people that say, well, you must be a crazy liberal whack job leftist because I guess they don't comprehend being truly independent. I I withdrew my allegiance to any political party, oh, God, I guess about five years ago when I realized that it really wasn't about party. It was about what made sense for, for myself and what made sense for, for me as an American. And the decision-making process you're talking about actually is, is kind of directly applied to politics, but it really evolved out of my uh, management role in several different businesses and deciding, well, do we make a decision to spend this money on a marketing campaign or do we make this decision to hire somebody or to lay somebody off? 
And I said, if we're going to make decisions that are going to affect a company or, you know, moving forward, affect a country, then we should have a logical process that's devoid of bias and uh, hurt feelings and emotion and just really analyze things based on practicality. And I think that applies not just to politics. It applies to do you invest more in your food storage right now or more in um, energy efficiency for your home. And if you if you get logical with that and you ask tough questions and you're not afraid of the answers, generally you'll be able to prioritize correctly. So like I think one of the big questions that I ask when we look at something we're going to do politically or any other place is, well, you know, a couple of them are, what happens if we do this? What happens if we don't do this? Those are two that I, I just don't think get asked enough by people before they decide which side of an issue they're going to stand on. And then here's the big one. Everybody bashed um, – you know, the Bush administration for not having an exit plan if we didn't work things out the right way in Iraq. Well, what's our exit plan when whenever one of these, you know, vaulted politicians comes up with a new plan for America that starts to not work? What's our exit plan? And with business, you have to do that. With the military, you have to do it. Apparently, if you're running a nation, you don't have to worry about it because, you know, you just print some more money or something to, to try to make it happen. But I think we need to be asking that question when we decide we're going to take any action. I'm going to take this action right now. I'm going to go out and uh, create a new law that says we are going to do something to boost the economy, or I'm going to make a choice to go out and take a loan on my house to do home improvement. What do I do if it doesn't go right? What's my exit strategy? And I, well, I, I when you buy don't a home, think people have, ask that. Yeah, people don't think about the fact that what if you fail to be able to pay for your home? What do you do next? And they, they just take on faith and hope that they'll be able to make the payment, not thinking, what happens if you lose your job, which is a fairly imminent possibility these days. Yeah, I mean, if you take, if you go to politics, I was just listening to a guy on the radio. Uh, I don't remember his name. He was a guest host for uh, a nationally syndicated guy that's on during lunch hour that I occasionally listen to. and uh, But he was talking about how back in the 30s when they put Social Security in place, how they said that it would never cost more than 1% of, uh, of, of, our, of our take-home pay. Um, and it would, it would absolutely never cost more than that, and they would never run out of money. And that was the promise that got it made. Well, now it's costing us about 15% of our money because your employer matches it. I think a lot of Americans aren't even aware of that, you know, intrusion on their income, that you're paying about 7.5%. But so, like, when I employ one of my employees and they pay their 75 I have to match it. So 15% of every American's income is vanishing into oblivion, which is 14% more than we were promised, and it didn't work, and now it's going broke, and we don't know what to do. We don't know how to get out of it. And, you know, it, you say that, the, like, taking a mortgage out on a house is not related to that, but I have found that whenever you are part of something and the leadership of that something sets a course, that it tends to trickle down into your own life, and then you tend to follow the example of your leadership. So to me, it's not at all... Uh, insane that the average American tends to do the same thing with their mortgage that our country has done with our wealth. And, and that's why I think these things are important to preparedness, where people say, well, we can keep the politics out of preparedness. Well, not so much, because there's uh, you know, 600 and some odd people that have a huge influence on your life, whether you like it or not. It's 540-some congresspeople, 100 senators and a president, and uh, a few Supreme Court justices, and they influence your life. And it doesn't mean that you have to you know, do everything that you do based on them. 
what it means is you have to understand how you're being influenced and even in hidden ways so that you can identify it and choose to opt out. Because a lot of people think, well, I'm opting out. Well, they're not opting out. They're playing ostrich. They put their head down in the sand, and they're following the pattern that was left for them. And because they don't pay attention, they don't think they're influenced. But they're following like connect the dots. How do we get around that? What do we have to do as a people instead of being sheeple? You call them sheeple. I call how them sheeple. Yeah, how do we cease being sheep people? We, we start before we pledge any allegiance to any idea, concept, vision, dream, decision. It doesn't matter what it is. We sit down and we analyze it as though we weren't part of it. In other words, like I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come to me as a business person and say, Jack, I'm having a problem with my business. And I'll look at their business and I'll analyze it. And because I'm not part of that business, I can immediately see the problems. I can immediately see where it's, it's ego or emotion or fear driving a decision that shouldn't be made or holding back a decision that should be made. So simple to see because I'm not inside there. And then I'll step back away and I'll look at one of my own businesses and I'll go, well, gee, dummy, you're doing the same thing. right? But as long as you're on the inside, as long as you're emotionally vested into it, it's very, very difficult for you to let go of that and just go, does this really make sense? Am I being prejudiced here? And I think a lot of times we make decisions in politics or even in our own family, and we have a prejudice getting in the way where we're, ju we're judging something based on a personal bias. And if we would pull out and just say, okay, if I was my own best friend and it didn't make the difference to me in the world the way that this worked out, what would I do then? And if you look at it as you're a third party giving advice, then maybe you'll give yourself the advice you should have been taking from yourself all along. So you, you get to, when you ask the hard questions and answer them without the emotions you mentioned, a person can begin to get some insights into what is the real thing to do as opposed to just following the crowd? Yeah, absolutely. And it's weird. It almost works. It, it's better than therapy. It's better than any time you'll spend on a psychologist's couch, right? Because all of a sudden you start to go, well, this is why I always kind of go down this rabbit hole when I really don't need to. This Jack, is why I'm always angry. And my other side of that with therapy is, you know, if you start asking the right questions and grow a garden, every psychologist in America will be out of business. Let me let me ask you. You got on a perfect subject. I have a question here from the uh, uh, from the chat room. Ask Jack about gardening in suburbia. How prepared can I really be if I only have a regular-sized backyard? Well, I mean, it depends on what regular size means. I see who that is. That's Sister Wolf there, so she's got a big backyard. <laughs> well, yeah, it's Sister uh, but, Wolf. But, but let's say that you have, you know, the typical American tenth of an acre. You could be amazingly prepared. Um, if you have a four-foot by four-foot space to grow a garden, uh, I can show you how using uh, Mel Bartholomew's method to grow 16 different varieties not plants, but varieties in a four-foot by four-foot section. There, there's so much that you can do with your backyard. And the next question I would ask, and I'm not going to pick on sis here because I, I know that, um, but uh, how many trees do you have in your backyard? How many bushes do you have in your backyard that don't do anything for you, right, that are just there to be green or have flowers uh, or like my Bradford pear this last week to fall on your driveway and block your cars in? Um, and maybe you need to terminate some of those because if you start doing things like planting some blackberries and maybe some apple and peach trees, all of a sudden you start to take all this stuff that you're wasting. I think that's a big thing that people don't understand with suburban gardening and suburban prepping. 
is that you all only have this little bit of yard. And then you go to their yard, they've got all this stuff growing. They've got an oak tree that grows acorns, and yeah, you could eat acorns, but let's be real. You can go out to any woodlot and find all the acorns you want, so that's maybe not the best allocation of your resources. And you've got a, a fruitless pear tree or a nutless pistachio tree in your front yard or a cypress. And these are beautiful trees, and they have a place. But if you're telling me your resources are, are, are slim, well, then all you're doing is you're using your resources ineffectively. It's like, well, it would be like, you know, I'm a big believer in having some cash stored up, right? But you don't put all of your assets into cash because we have this thing called inflation that takes away against the value of inflation. So if you took all your money and let's say you had a half a million dollars in cash and you stuck it under your mattress like, you know, the the, the old lady of lore, um, basically you're going to have about 5 to 10% of the value of that money disappear every year. So you're not allocating your investment properly. Well, if you have a small backyard and you're growing oleanders and oak trees and Bradford pears, you're not allocating the, the slim resource you have properly. So you can be extremely, extremely prepared and extremely self-sufficient with a backyard. And the people I always hold up as an example of how far this can go are a group of folks named the Derveas family in Southern California. They have a fifth of an acre lot, but only a tenth is under cultivation because the house has to have a space and there's, you know, a driveway and things like that. They produce six to eight thousand pounds of food a year from a, a, a tenth of an acre. So it's all about how much you really want out of it. And I guess the other side of that is please make sure you're not trying to go to that point in one year, because you're going to be very, very disappointed unless it's a full-time occupation for you. I'm just telling you that's what's possible. So start with little steps. And my big challenge to people is go in your backyard or your front yard today, right now. As soon as the show's over, open your door, walk out, and target one area to kill stuff, right? And I'm talking about growing things, so you think killing is a bad thing. No, you have grass, you have pointless trees, you have pointless shrubs, Pick one area that has good solar exposure where you could grow something useful, target an area for death, kill it. I don't care if it's four square feet of grass, and put something useful there and get started on it. A person can literally put on every fence grapes, uh, berries of all different kinds. Uh, you can In most every clime, you can grow food because in the U.S., there's a, in every state, in every part of the country, there's a growing season for some products. Local people can help them determine that. Every local store knows that kind of information, and there are sites all over the Internet. The couple you mentioned, or the, the family you mentioned down in Southern California, earn a whole living telling people what they do on the Internet. It's a beautiful, I mean, their backyard looks like uh, Babylonia. It's so beautiful it's hang, with all the hanging gardens. You can build trellises. You can get rid of those big old trees that just shed leaves and put in uh, fruit trees. Um, we've we've done all that, uh, and it really makes a lot of difference. Yeah, the deer are eating everything now. We're not getting anything out of it, but we're keeping a lot of animals alive, and, sure. and it's okay too. But we we are doing it. There are many people in a very small area can grow a tremendous amount of edible food. And, and you know, James, this is how I feel about the deer eating the food on my property. That's great. That's livestock. I don't have to take care of. And, and besides, I promise you I'll be eating, not all, but some of those deer before <laughs> Christmas time. Well, and the point is, they know where to go to get it, and you know where to get them. It's a pretty good deal, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's a great deal. It's the way that the world was set up. We, we really are not set up on this planet as individuals. 
to live with a, a population density the way that we do in cities. The planet is designed for man and man for the planet. We're part of it. And everything that we could possibly need is there for us if we would get out of our own way and, and, and stop trying to live on top of each other. Um, 100,000 people living in a 10-square-mile area is the way that, that, that insects are supposed to live, not human beings. Uh, we have Jack, we have a question from the 215. Hello, can you hear us? What, what's your Hello? name? Hello, what's your name? Robert. Robert. What do you have? Do you have a question for Jack? Uh, no, just a comment. Okay. Um, I'm calling. I'm calling from Kamakura, Japan. It's three thirty in the morning here, and I just woke up. Um, Jack, I'm um, um, a follower of, of your survival podcast, and I just wanted to say thank you. Um, this is this is wild. I I just woke up um, um, from a, a deep sleep with my two Boston Terriers beside me here. And I planted my fall garden. And um, your uh, Thursday podcast, I believe it was, was just absolutely Friday, maybe. Uh, it was just absolutely fantastic. I put in some broccoli and, and lettuce and spinach and this, that, and the other. Um, and I just want to say thank you for all you do. I really appreciate listening to your podcasts as I make my drive in from Kamakura, Japan, into Tokyo. We're about, uh, oh gosh, about an hour south of Tokyo. Um, and I drive in Monday through Friday into Tokyo. I'm a broadcast journalist myself, uh, so and uh, I, I really enjoy what you do. Well, thank you, and I'll tell you what, I'd love to get over. You're part of the world sometime. Uh, I bet there's some things we could really learn from the Japanese when it comes to gardening. Uh, yes, you know, I, I live here in the hills of Kamakura, and, you know, when I take my little dogs for a walk, you know, we pass by uh, a lot of small fields, uh, where people are growing vegetables, uh, farmers come out and, and they grow their vegetables and and they do it the natural way. Um, I don't see them using fertilizers or anything, and and yeah, things really grow well here. Um, yeah, you would love it here. <laughs> cool, uh, cool. Well, thank you. And and Robert, J- uh, James, um, um, I, I, I don't. I, this is the first time I've I've come across you and and your program. Um, are you on regularly? Uh? Saturday at one o'clock our time, which would and it, you can download it anytime you want. It's free. It's a digital download, just like uh, Jack. Yeah. And you can uh, uh-huh. Blog Talk Radio slash Family, and it's the only yeah, prepared, yeah. it's the only preparing to show on the BTR, the Blog Talk Radio Network. Uh, there are yeah, other. People. I'm looking at the website now. Yeah. yeah. You see my middle. We, we've done really well from zero. With Jack's help, we've gone from zero to number three in 15 weeks. So we feel pretty good about that. Fantastic. Fantastic. And we really focused well, on the preparedness. Both of you, keep up the good work. I, I really appreciate it. Robert, thanks, thanks for calling in, man. Just feel good when we when people, three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> we love it. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> oh, that's humbling, uh, that's honestly. <laughs> Thank you. person calling from Japan at 3 a.m., wow. That's best dedication. You can't help. We have another caller while we're taking calls here. Let's take call as many as we can. Hello, in the 661? Are you there? In the Hello. 661? Hey. Yeah, I was uh, looking at the chat room while we were while I was waiting. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm getting ready to do a show in about an hour, and we'd like to invite uh, um, all of you to join us uh, and talk about this and um, tie this into our discussions called Shipwreck States.
Okay, from, tell uh, us about a prison about... guard. Okay, you're a prison guard. Okay. Uh, yeah. Those people didn't prepare very well, apparently, the ones you watch. But tell us about your show. Where is it located? How do we blog talk. Okay, the BTR? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's in the which section? Under family it's or under uh, apprentice teacher? Um, appre- but I mean, what section is it in? I'm sorry? Which section is it in? There's several sections. Oh, you mean as far as categories? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd have to go check. Um, okay, because that helps category people. We have it under. But it's, it's under. Uh, it's probably it's cultural. Pe- cultural. Okay, okay, great. Under cultural, find the apprentice teacher. And uh, what do you t- typically talk about? Well, we talk about uh, um, you know restoring uh, you know our communities to a uh, holistic um, balance. For example, if there isn't a community garden, then that's one of the things we're working on yeah. through Mojave Green, which is a jobs outreach. Um, if there's a guy here in town that's growing you know kale and other you know collard greens in January here in the mountains uh, east of Bakersfield. He's got a little tent that goes on top of his grow box. He built a grow box, and then found the little the little tents online, um, you know, little uh, greenhouse uh, type, uh, um, you know, protection from the frost and what have you. Um, and I was over at his house last night for a barbecue, and everything came out of his garden. Um, right. Incredible variety. This guy used to live in Palmdale, you know, next to a uh, a large store. Um, that uh, we're you know we're talking to local landscape uh, gardeners about uh, um, promoting urban gardens. Instead of going out and tending people's shrubs, they would actually go out every week and water and weed their vegetable gardens. I think that's great, and I think a lot of it's happening, and people don't even realize it. Um, and what I mean is, like, the things are being wasted. I just saw in the last year something happened here in Dallas-Fort Worth that I'm overjoyed and saddened about at the same time. All of a sudden, people figured out how beautiful sweet potato vines are. And we have these uh, the margarita green and the purple sweet potato vines in landscaping all over Dallas-Fort Worth right now. I can I can drive you around both cities and just show you uh, shop front after shop front after shop front with these beautiful sweet potato vines everywhere. And I just know no one's going to dig them up, maybe other than me, go out and get some for free. Um, this fall when they die back. But basically, um, there's a, there's probably tons of free food available just in Dallas-Fort Worth right now for people taking something edible and putting it into a landscape. And I guarantee you most of them don't even realize they're doing what. There's, there's 20 apartment complexes I've counted within about a four-square-mile area of my house that are doing that right now and probably growing uh, just that alone, probably 500 pounds of sweet potatoes. <laughs> Well, people don't have, realize you can grow veggies much easier than you can grow grass. Sure. How about Austin? Austin, Texas? Yeah. Do they do something there? I, I, bet, got, I bet they're I good, got, too. <laughs> I got an older daughter and a younger daughter that's got families in Austin. Yeah. I'll okay. bet you if you look, I mean, the sweet potato vine is a very light green. They call it a margarita or something like that to, to enhance its marketability because it, it does kind of look like if you've ever had a nice, well-made, proper margarita instead of the stuff made out of, you know, souped-up Kool-Aid or whatever, it's got that kind of green color to it. It's a very beautiful plant, and I, I would tell you just on the way I saw it take off here, I bet it's taken off all over Texas and uh, uh. just – 
Jimmy's look for it. You'll you'll know it when you see it based on what I've just said. It's easy to grow. Oh, it's it, sweet potatoes are one of the easiest things in the world to grow. And where do you uh, get? For, go ahead. Where do you get the cuttings or the stuff for it? The, the well, seeds? they're all over in the garden shops. I don't know about right now because it's a bit late in the year to plant them now. Uh, they're, they're, sweet potatoes is a warm weather vegetable, uh, but in the spring you find them in all the nurseries and garden uh, shops. But you can make what are called slips just by getting a sweet potato and cutting it into cubes, leaving the skin on, and basically forming roots off of each little cube. And, I mean, you can make 20 um, slips, as they call them, which are new plants, out of, of one typical sweet potato. So it's, it's easy amazing. to propagate. It's, uh, and then for people that are worried about, like, glycemic indexes and sugar content and all, a sweet potato, believe it or not, even though it's called a sweet potato and it tastes so sweet, it actually has a lower glycemic index than a white potato. So it's healthier for you. It has beta carotene in it. Uh, it's got good nutrient value. It's easy to grow. It's easy to replicate. Uh, you can start out with one potato to make your slips and save one or two every year and have a perpetual crop that you grow for yourself. It, it, it's not a good northern crop, to be honest. I mean, people that are up in Pennsylvania or Colorado or whatever, you're not going to get as good a result out of it. But for anybody in the south, it's, it's just an awesome crop that's been lost to uh, – I don't know, ego or what have you, but, again, it's making a comeback through decorative landscaping. Actually, this year, according to the government, which you always have to wonder about, they said that victory gardens, which is the term for people uh, in in a crisis creating gardens as he did in the Second World War, gardens are up 54% over last year alone. So that means people are feeling the pinch and also feeling the need to start doing something. So, obviously, there is a need and there is a response to that. Uh, potatoes are one of the easiest things. Any kind of potato is easy to grow. All you have to do is cut cut a potato so that an eye is showing. The mm-hmm. little eye, they'll sprout from there in a heartbeat. And a potato, uh, even at 50 cents, is a bargain because you can get about 10 to 20 uh, more potato vines, and they will grow 10 to 12 potatoes each or more, depending on the soil, or we less. Grew, soil. We grew 127 pounds of Yukon gold potatoes this year, James, in four old tires that my son's friend yeah. got for me from his work. The and all potato. we did was cut the sidewalls out of them, filled the first one with dirt, and when they grew about a foot tall through another tire, filled it with dirt, and when they got to the top, we let them die back, pulled the tires off, pulled the potatoes out, and then took that dirt and put it into our uh, raised bed system. Sure. What, we'll that, why did you cut the sidewalls off? The, uh, off the tires? So that when you pulled the tires up, and, and let the dirt out, it would come out easily, and you didn't try to have to pack it into the sides of the tires. You make rings. You make rings out of the treads, what do yep. you think? You just cut the you cut the sidewalls. You leave a little bit of them, about an inch. But if you leave the tire whole when you do that, you've got this great huge air cavity. Uh, or if you get the dirt pushed into there, um, yeah. when you go to take them up and let the dirt out, it kind of sticks in there. It's kind of a pain in the butt. So we just cut the majority of the, the sidewalls out with an, uh, a razor knife. Okay, so you you put the dirt in, then cut the sidewalls out. No, no, no. You cut. You take your four. T- you can you can use two. You could use six. Honestly, I used four. But you just take your tires. You just cut the sidewalls out of the tires, so that you've got the outer tread part of the tires, the ring. You throw that uh-huh. on the ground. You fill it up with dirt. You put your potato. You know your potatoes. Uh, your your odd piece of potatoes in there, and they'll start to grow gotcha. for you. Uh, yeah. Awesome, awesome. I know a guy that uh, that's got lots of tires. Um, and we got um, a movement out here uh, with you know Mojave Green is a is a jobs training outreach that uh, we start with the community and then and then when there's enough interest uh, we can start a farmers market 
um, general store, you know, all of that stuff from Little House on the Prairie, you know, we're bringing to local Mexican meat market uh, here in town. That's awesome. Um, under under new ownership. Um, guy, guy that used to work at 7-Eleven for 19 years, you know, and now he's got his own store here in the mountains. Well, one of the things Jack is doing with tires, what you can do with garbage cans, you recycle anything, you cut the bottom out, turn it upside down so the big side's down. You can grow container gardening is what it's called. You can grow them on your porch. You can grow them in your, uh, along your driveway, anywhere there's enough sun to raise a crop. But tomatoes are difficult because they require a lot of sun. But you can grow those on, a, on the back porch, on a sunny porch, in a bucket. And, uh, I mean, you can do amazing uh, uh, horticulture uh, in, in containers, uh, old barrels, uh, waste cans, anything that is round or anything that whole dirt. Round is better because it, it, it works better. But it's really, really easy to grow in containers, and you can start with containers on top of the ground just by throwing down some plastic, some plastic to keep, so the grass under doesn't come up through. And you can, and of course that kills the grass. It makes it easier to dig up when you when you finish, or you can just keep on going. There's so many ways to do this. Mel Bartholomew's book, Square Foot Gardening, is one of the best. He's figured out and teaches you how to do it just a few square feet. As Jack says, you can have a tremendous a harvest of, of many different kinds, and you can companion plant so that the corn, the, the peas are craw- the, the peas and beans are crawling up the corn stalk. It's tremendous what you can do if you just put your mind to it. Read the instructions and follow through. It's pretty simple. Yeah, um, on the on the corn and the beans, that's something I've tried several times, and um, I've just never done well with corn here in Dallas. Between the heat, the humidity, the back and the forth, and and just the it's a tough environment for corn if you don't use a lot of uh, synthetic fertilizer. So this year I tried um, sunflowers. I did mammoth sunflowers, and I grew the beans up the mammoth sunflowers. That worked freaking amazingly. So the sunflowers grow trellis. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. I have this huge trellis of uh, of purple pole beans now, and, and the, the the effort of planting, planting the trellis was sticking eight sunflower seeds in the ground and just letting them grow. And the only caution I'll give you is let your sunflowers get about two foot tall uh, before you plant your beans. I had a, uh, somebody email me recently said they did the same thing, but they planted the beans like right on top of uh, uh, the sunflowers before the sunflowers got any height, and the flowers grew so fast they yanked the beans out the ground. Yeah, that'll happen. So it, it, you learn by experience, you learn by doing, and it's really easy. Uh, while we have a, uh, I have another question that's really important. Uh, a lady's asking about water. She says, should I store water or a water purifier so I can purify water in my lake? Let's explain to her the hazards of that kind of decision-making. Sure. I mean, I, I think the answer to to that is I don't know about purifying the water in your lake, but I think the answer is yes to both. You need to store as much water as you can, but I don't believe you'll ever store as much water as you really need. So having a means by which to... Uh, to, to purify water is extremely important. I would not rely on filtration alone uh, for water out of a lake, though. Um, there's a, a particular nasty out there called, uh, was, is it uh, chlorosporidium, or uh, is, is that the right one? That's one of them. Yeah, and that one, the only guaranteed method to kill that is uh, boiling. So filtration's great, but if you, uh, cliptosporidium, that's the one I'm looking for. If, if you're taking water out of some, especially standing water like a lake, filtration's great. I would still boil it, but uh, I would make sure that you have a method of, of both purification 
and as much storage as possible. And James gave me a great tip the last time I was on his show. Um, I water my garden about every other day in the heat of the summer and about every fourth or fifth day when it's not peak heat. And uh, so I'm pushing water through a hose. And uh, what he suggested I do, and I'm actually working on putting together now, is uh, get several, uh, like, 50-gallon water drums Mm -hmm. and link them in series and just Mm -hmm. push the water through the drums. So you're constantly uh, creating a, a new supply of water um, without doing anything extra, really, other than having a place for it. So I'd store as much as you can, but when you start looking at how much water, let's say, a family of four needs for, let's say, if we went into a real bad situation, six months or more, uh, I, I, it's just not possible to store uh, without something like uh, underground cisterns or a pool or a lake, I, I think, as much as you need. So you've got to have both sides of that. You really do, and and having a supply of water where it won't freeze, because freezing water has tremendous force. It'll burst up any kind of drum in a heartbeat. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, what I suggested was that you, you, you put your water barrels in your garage or someplace where it doesn't freeze and run your water through it so you're constantly refreshing your supply. You don't have to treat city water. If you put it in a clean container, uh, the... the uh, uh, the, the water will clean clean out the container, keep it clean, and you don't have any problems. You can store water from a tap. Uh, if it's clean to drink, you can store it for years. You don't have to treat it going in. You may want to treat it coming out, depending on how long you've stored it. But by refreshing your water daily or weekly, you don't have the storage. It doesn't get flat, and it stays clean, and it's really handy to have. And all you have to do is cut. When If something goes wrong with the city system, make sure you turn your house, you disconnect your house by turning the, the, uh, the, uh, knob to make yeah. sure the faucet to make sure that it doesn't come out doesn't re- come in from the city anymore and you don't have a backflow it can suck the water out of your house also <laughs> yeah. Yeah. if you live in a high place uh water will be sucked out of your system to fill the the uh, gravity works with water very very well so you know you, i think you just said something that's so important that people need to understand i get so many people i get this question four to five times a week how do i treat my water for storage the thing about water is if it's clean if there's nothing in it and you don't – if you put it into a container with nothing in it, that there's no kind of uh, uh, bad uh, bad stuff in there, uh, bacteria or whatever, its storage is almost infinite. And I think people overthink that one. For something to multiply in your water, it has to have – one, it has to get in there, and then two, it has to have some sort of uh, food and light. So dark, clean container with water – it's going to last, a, is, you know, and, and the other side of that is if you're that worried about it, well, hell, replace it every six months because it's uh, it's really cheap while the water's flowing. Well, and you can always use the water for plants or for some other purpose, flush sure. your toilets, whatever. We don't worry too much about water. We do have a well, and we have 30,000-gallon cistern. It's big, uh, and, and we have a 1,500-gallon tank extra uh, in, in between. But we we teach this stuff, so obviously we have to do it. We don't go around showing picture, people pictures of it because that's our private life. We don't want everybody knowing where we are for whatever reason, uh, whatever those reasons may be. Jack, we have another question that's come up. Uh, somebody said, where can you get dirt in DFW, uh, around DFW? Because, first of all, everything they buy is like ground-up wood. Yeah. Tell people how to make dirt. You, you, I know you well, there's, there's a couple different ways you can do that. Um, I am a big fan of Mel Bartholomew and square foot gardening, and, and what he would tell you is in your four-foot by four-foot by six-inch deep bed, uh, just put in there a mix of uh, one-third peat moss, one-third vermiculite, uh, and one-third compost. 
I'll tell you that I'm a big fan of using as much compost as possible, and the easiest way I know of to get compost, and the cheapest way is to make it yourself. Um, and a lot of people will tell me, well, I don't have enough waste to produce a lot of compost. Well, go find you a grocery store or two and say that you'd like to come by on Wednesday nights or Thursday nights or whatever and pick up produce that they're throwing away. And uh, after about three weeks of doing that, you'll probably tell them you don't need any more for a while because you'll be amazed at how much you'll get for free. And I've just actually, I think I've invented this. I, no one else showed me this, but I think I've created the easiest, simplest composting and cheapest composting uh, bin system uh, to keep things neat and organized and nice looking so your wife doesn't yell, you know, to man. And uh, vermiculite is not equal expensive, uh, noob survivalist. Vermiculite in little tiny bags is expensive. Big giant bags, of course, vermiculite is cheap. You just need to call around and ask some places and find it. Um, but on the composting, and you don't need the vermiculite. If you use 100% compost, folks, it'll grow like you won't believe. And the, the compost bin that I've come up with, I'm going to be putting videos together on how to make this, is you go out and buy yourself about three 32-gallon flat-bottom trash cans that are about $10 a piece. And you drill some holes in them for aeration. You cut a hole in the top about four inches diameter. And you get a piece of a four-inch drain pipe with the little holes in it already, the stuff that you use to take water away from your backyard. You stick that down the center, and you throw your stuff in that garbage can. And you don't cut the bottom out of it. You leave the bottom in there. And as it breaks down to a certain level, you just pick it up and dump it into the next can. You set up three or four cans like that, and you just keep rotating it through there. And you can make a ton of compost that way. And uh, you're gonna you're gonna find out that that that'll make more than you can probably use over uh, let's say a couple seasons. And never, uh, if you compare the cost of doing that, okay, so you're like thirty bucks into the garbage cans at about what uh, ten bucks into three pieces of pipe. Um, one good uh, compost bin that actually falls apart on you will actually cost a hell of a lot more than that. Yeah, over a hundred bucks. Yeah, so so three garbage cans. And the reason I go with 30, like you get the 50-gallon, the 75, 100-gallon cans. The reason I go with a 32-gallon can is I've done some experimenting, and the average adult male can pick up a 32-gallon can of compost and dump it into the next can. So there's no shoveling involved. You try to do that with a 75-gallon can, you're going to be going to the doctor to get one of them surgeries we don't want. Well, what, the interesting thing is that you never, we never throw away a grass clipping. We, they they no. go into compost. The secret is keeping it wet. The other secret, as you know, is turning it by dumping it from one container to another. It will it will happen very, very quickly. If you just stack it up over in the corner, it just lies there over years because it, ha it can't get air and it can't get water. And that's what it takes for those microbes to grow, to reproduce and to eat up that stuff and turn it into, into great, great, great compost. Here's so, the things you can do to accelerate your compost. One... Make sure you're turning it and aerating. That's why I put the pipe with the holes in it down through the middle. Uh, number two, as you said, make sure you're keeping it wet. Number three, don't put your bin under a tree somewhere where it's shaded. Go ahead and let the sun hit it and help warm it up, and it'll get the internal temperature higher uh, faster. Uh, number three, throw some worms in there. They'll do a lot of good for you. Uh, number four, don't block it off and keep insects from getting into it. Black soldier flies will break down things so fast you, you know, your head will spin. Uh, number five... Big stuff, throw it on the ground, run it over with your lawnmower before you throw it in there. Uh, if you do that, you'll be producing compost in two months instead of two years. Yeah, you you want to mulch it before you. Uh, uh, that's why we get it out of the mower. Uh, yep. We mulch it before we start to try to compost it. There's, yep. there's two different purposes, and make sure you get them straight. Well, that's uh, you know we're teaching uh, everything we can. Any other? Let me see if there are some other questions. I think. Uh, 
Um, a lot of chatter in there. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of things, a lot of things going on. Uh, no other questions, but we have some things to tell them, and that is to tell them where they can get the book on your website to make sure they do that. Please go buy a book from Jack. The book has. Uh, it, it, I don't do gardening. I'm, uh, there's so many climates. I just haven't done it yet, but we're contemplating in the twelfth edition. The fifth edition is out. It's over 500 pages. You can get it on Jack's website. Go to his home homepage where it says uh, books and click on books. It's about in the center of the page. It's about the fourth item down under pages. Click on that page. Upper left hand corner, right right to the left hand corner under his logo is books. Click on making the best of basics. Buy the books. It'll help Jack keep his show going. Uh, help finance that property uh, that he's working on and keep you him keep him on the air so he can get this great advice. And if uh, I could say something about the, my book list, and I, I'm proud to have your book on it. Um, I do have a, a group of recommended books there, and uh, all of them one way or another pay me a little bit of money. But that's not why they're there. Every book on my book list is on my bookshelf. And if it's not on my bookshelf, it doesn't go on my book list. And if I buy it and I read it and I throw it away, it doesn't go on my book list. It's it's not, Books for me are not so much about a, a profit model for my show. I'm listener-supported mostly. I do appreciate the additional revenue. But what I want you to understand is if I recommend a book, and especially James's book, it's because I believe in it and I believe it will help you. Uh, James was kind enough before his latest edition came out to send me a copy of his last edition when we first met. And I read it. And uh, there's a couple things I'd like to tell you about that. But number one, I was really glad that I'd done my show for over a year um, before I read his book because I think a lot of the things that I say are so directly applicable to the things he's saying, it would have looked like I copied his, 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 his methodology to a degree. We're very much in sync, and if you like my show, you're going to love James's book. Uh, number two, I learned a hell of a lot from reading it. Um, I learned some things that I thought were really fascinating. One was I've been big on the grasshopper and the ant story since I ever started. And then I was reading James's book, and he was talking about white flower versus wheat flower. And he was talking about how if you put a pile of white flower out in the field and the ants find it, they basically walk around it, but they'll devour the wheat flower. And I saw a lot of synchronicity there in the way that we're thinking. And I learned something because I didn't know that. So. What I'm telling you is the philosophy that I've been, you know, you know screaming to you across the airwaves now uh, for a year and a half is in that book plus more. So when I make the recommendation that you buy it, I, you know, if you buy it through my site, great, I appreciate that. But one way or another, get your hands on the book. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when you're going to start shipping the new edition. I'm excited to see it when it comes out. Um, two weeks, hopefully. Two weeks. So two weeks. Um, it is going to it is going to help you be a better prepper. Uh, uh-huh. I give you my word on that. And we have a lot of resources in the book to help you find the things you need. And uh, uh, thank all of you who have bought a book in the past. It makes it possible and, and, and worth doing in the future. It's a huge book. And uh, as I said, buy it off Jack's website. It's the best way you can keep us both going. Uh, I wish Jack made more on it. It's not that big a deal, but uh, it will help him help you. So we're down to the three minutes. We're going to get the call in a minute. So, Jack, I'm going to have to say thank you. We're out of time. There were a couple of other questions. I apologize for that. I guess we'll have to have you back so you can answer those questions. We well, love having you. Everybody, you're the on the show. Everybody knows how uh, how popular you are, and I'm just tickled that you'll take the time to come on on my show. Uh, this has been the 15th edition of the Family Preparedness Guide Talk Show, and you can get this in the Blog Talk Radio Archive in about uh, half an hour to an hour. 
and you can listen to it. We keep count of that. Jack is the all-time leader, so don't let him lose face here. Go listen to it. And I thank you, Jack, for taking the time, to, uh, uh, knowing how much time you have to put into your survival podcast. That is the survivalpodcast.com. And your participation in the program is really, really wonderful. Thank you for taking the time. You've got great knowledge, great experience. Appreciate the information about Dirt 9 and Dirt Time 09, as it's called, and for your podcast. Thank you for all the good work you do on that. Those of you who don't listen to Jack, you should. You'll get a lot of self-reliance information, a lot of information in general, and you'll be glad that you listen to his show. I'm James Thomas Stevens. I'm the author of Making the Best of Basics. I'm your host. I have a blog site at uh, familypreparednessguide.com. Uh, appreciate if you go there, support it, leave comments, let us know what you want to know. We always love comments, don't we, Jack? We want to. Yeah, yeah. We Even the ones that say I did it wrong, I like those the best because they. Oh, yeah, yeah. We can't improve if we don't know how we're failing. So uh, any feet? What is it? They say bad publicity is better than none at all. Yeah. <laughs> so bad comments are better than all, or our bad performance maybe is not as good as any, but we'll get better with feedback. We have free. Both of us have free information only sites and. I think you can download all of our information, read it anytime you want, listen to it anytime you want. There's no charge for that. So next week I'll be interviewing Aaron Mackley, who has a great website for things to do and how to do it, and he'll be on. Uh, he has a great uh, Simply the Best. Uh, um, it's called uh, – uh, yeah, sorry, I, I'm running out of time. Uh, listen to us. Get comments into our section. We will be discussing next week the why, the what, the where, and how to get you and your family truly prepared for the uncertain future because, you know, no one knows what lies just over the horizon. Thank you again for listening to the Family Preparedness Guide talk show. We're tickled to have you. I sincerely hope that you've learned something today and and we've done something that will help you be more motivated to do something positive about your family's preparedness. By the way, Jack, if you want, we can stay a couple of minutes. I know it's Saturday. Everybody should know that if they want to hang around, it won't be broad, it won't be live, but we'll be here talking, and it will be recorded, and we'll be able to hear it later. So if you can stay, fine. Appreciate it. Hang on for just a minute. They're going to cut us off. Thanks, and until next time, have a great week. Thanks, Jack. Okay, you still there? I'm still here, and uh, my wife's out shopping, so I've got some more time today. We have plenty of people on. They can still communicate. It's just not being on the air. It is being recorded, so everything we say. But we can let our hair down now because it's not uh, It's not being on the air live. <laughs> it's going to be recorded. Everything we do is still part of the show. So we had some um, We had some people asking some questions up the top. And Let's I just... see. I had a good one here. It was on real estate. That's one of my things. Uh, All right. Noob, noob Survivalist, who, by the way, I uh, met Noob Survivalist uh out at Dirt Time 09, and what he's asking is he's putting money away so he can buy a property in three to five years. Okay. Still in college, looking to buy some acreage in a rural area. Should he keep the money back and let it be eaten up by inflation, or should he go ahead and invest now? Any ideas? Well, that's a tough one because I don't know your entire situation, what you're in, you know, because you're in college. Does that mean you're in college full-time and have no income? And if you're still on, dude, go ahead and – uh Fill any of this information in for me so I can do better for you. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know if you have an income level because obviously you don't buy any property you can't afford, and you don't buy anything that you can't afford if you lose your job and you can't continue to pay for it for at least six months. I don't care what it is. 
Um, but I would not be too terribly concerned about inflation against real estate right now in the short term because we're still seeing a lot of good deals come out. And I think, James, I don't know if you disagree with this or not, but I think we're a hell of a long way from the bottom of the real estate market. I think oh, yeah. we'll see some spot recoveries here and there in certain areas. And there's there's places that are just always desirable to live. If you have a beachfront property and uh, only millionaires can afford it, well, millionaires always have money. So, you know, that that area may see the biggest drop, but it may see a quicker recovery. But there's a ton of good value out there right now. I've I've been looking um, to help some folks find property, and I've I've not had any trouble finding uh, really good deals out there. So I wouldn't sweat that. The big thing is if you're in school, you're probably broke. Uh, so if you're saving any money, great. Keep saving it. Uh, you'll probably be able to save faster than the rate of inflation unless we have some kind of crazy hyperinflation kick in. Uh, I'm not seeing that in the next two years. I think it's I think it's inevitable for our fiat currency system. I just don't think we're at the end game yet. What do you think on that, James? I, I'm, my fear is that we're going to go into hyperinflation. We've never enjoyed that in the United States. We've never had to deal with yeah. it. And I'm, I'm concerned that that's going to happen when then when it'll take a wheelbarrow full of money to get a sack full of groceries. Yeah. That is, that's my greatest concern, my greatest fear given my 70 years, is thinking having stood in lines during the Second World War to get meat with a red token and to buy bread with a blue token, I remember those days. There are a few of us out there who, who remember that. Some were older than I, not a whole bunch of people left. But there there's some things coming that, um, that hey, the, the love is gone from the presidency. All of a sudden we're seeing below 50% approval. We're seeing that winter's coming, the solstice affective disorder, sad as it's called, is yep. coming. We're going to lose our optimism. Uh, people losing jobs still. Uh, interest rates are still hurting people. Job loss is hurting people. Uh, so many things are hurting people and can't get reemployed. That seems to be the biggest problem. How can they continue to, in, they, and they're taxing the people who fund the jobs. Um, I don't know. And businesses are being over, overtaxed right now too. They're really, the, the, the dishonest government is taxing the honest taxpayer and telling them they're going after the dishonest taxpayers. I'm, I'm having a little trouble with that. I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it kind of bothers me a bit that that I see I see robbers, thieves, plunderers, and philanderers running our organization with special privileges, with special things for them that we can't have, and then they tell us how bad it is and to keep them in office so they can do more to us. I don't. We're, are we? We're not very intelligent some days, are we? Yeah, and I'll tell you, the, the, my, my view of that is that the original question there is if you can afford property, now's a great time to buy. Absolutely. So if, you, if you've got the money and you could go in and buy the property free and clear, or you could buy it with such a low payment against it that if you had to go work at 7-Eleven for 20 hours a week, you knew you could make the payment, that now might be the time to buy but if you can't afford it, and you can't afford it if one or two things like – you can afford it now, but if one or two things in your life changed, you could not afford it then, then you're not ready to buy yet no matter what the situation is because a lot of this grief that we're dealing with was people buying stuff when they shouldn't have been buying anything or buying way the hell more than they could afford. Um, I, my wife and I love to watch a show, House Hunters, because it tells you a lot about how people think. 
And we watched a show the other day, and these people had a $2 million budget, and I don't know what the hell they did to be able to have a $2 million budget, but at the end of the show, they bought a $2.9 million house, which proves that rich people can be stupid too. And uh, a lot of times, it's stupid rich people that cause grief uh, for a lot of hardworking middle-class people. Well, I think you're right. I, I, I probably got off on a, I heard the, I understood the question you were asking me differently. Real estate is always a great investment, but the advice you just gave is good in, for good times and bad because nobody knows how long the company they work with that pays them a tremendous salary will be able to continue to do so or whether that job will remain important. Remember programmers used to think that they would always have a job? How many programmers are looking for jobs today? You know, There's they, a they, lot of programmers looking for jobs today. Because now everything self-programs. The programs are written by... Uh, other people in other places, and now you can just tweak them a little bit, and they work fine. Or they're so voluminous in their in, in the data or in the uh, the configuration that it'll do virtually anything you tell it to do. So all of a sudden, program in-house programmers aren't as important and aren't as needy in most companies as they used to be. And so, uh, and also, what is it they they used to call them the people, the uh, masters, the, uh, the the people who ran the systems. Um, the systems managers, the systems they don't need administrators. Yeah, administrators. Yeah. System administrators aren't needed as much as they used to be no. needed. Uh, no, equipment's gotten a lot simpler. Uh, everything seems to work on its own, and the way we're connected to cloud computers and things like it's a whole different world, even for those people with their sophisticated knowledge. You know, so, in my primary company, we actually do quite a bit of uh, web-level application programming. But I have a single programmer that's employed with a job that sits at a desk, and his primary job is to outsource work, uh, and he'll outsource it to anything from a kid living in his parents' basement in Indiana is one of our outsourced guys to people over in Delhi. And people say, well, Jack, you're outsourcing American labor. Well, I'm also competing in a global marketplace, and I have to compete with the marketplace as it is. So those are decisions that I'm forced to make, and as a business person, I look at that and I just go, you know what, I have to give my customer the most affordable, most scalable, best solution I can. So that means you I have go to... wherever that is. So you're right. I mean, it's getting tougher and tougher. And skills that we used to think were like, uh, you know, really high-end skills that only you know a handful of people had, now they're all over the world and they can be had for $10 an hour only as needed versus a salary of $120,000 a year for a guy that I have to pay whether he's working or not. You've got ten. You probably have a ten-year-old child at home that knows as much about the internet and and how to make a computer sing than than you know now because yeah, you taught them all. They're you know. not afraid, man. They just do it, and they, if it doesn't work, they just do it a different way the next time. Where we adults were like, I don't want to screw it up. Yeah, but I'm afraid we'll hurt something. <laughs> yeah, they don't care. They're not afraid, and that means they learn a hell of a lot faster. And that that curve of knowledge and evolution and technical skills is hit a hockey stick it's never coming back from. And uh, your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren will be able to do things with a computer that we can't even think of yet. And uh, that's not going away. And, and that's great on one hand, but on the other hand, it's just another place where people had a skill set that they thought was a high-dollar skill set that was going to take them through a 50-year career that's become a minimum-wage job. And I'm sorry that that's the way it is, but that's the way it is. Now, what I've noticed, though, is the people that I don't see hurting for, 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 uh, for money right now are the people that have, like, old skill sets. 
there's a guy down the street from here that does handmade cabinetry. And he, I talked to him, and he said he's not making the kind of money and the level of business he was during the builder's boom when he was doing all these custom cabinets. But, you know, he's still paying all his bills. And that's because there's there's no, you know, guy that I can outsource to Delhi or an illegal alien that's going to do that job for $8 an hour because it has a, a fundamental skill set, a knowledge that takes years to acquire and you can't just replace it. And there's there's something to be learned there. And content. It's it, it just like you and I fight all the time. If we don't have good content, nobody's going to listen. No. And so sometimes the content either challenges the mind or pleases the palate. You have two options. Uh, and somewhere in between is where I try to land, is, is to say not namby-pamby things, but to say things that are meaningful, that are true, because truth is always recognized. And sometimes you really hurt people when you tell the truth because they say, ouch, yeah. that has pierced my shield. <laughs> and, and that's just the way it is. And when I go way out sometimes with my opinions, people say, that doesn't track with me. It may not. But after 35 years of being an author and, 30, and living all my life, from a far, I grew up on a farm, what, when I tell people, I don't get into detail you do about gardening because I, I haven't been gardening in the last 10 years. I've forgotten a lot of that. Since I moved to this site, which is all rock and deer, uh, I haven't done a lot because I've been busy with some other things. I don't have time to go out in 150-degree sun and plant. It's even hotter here than Dallas. And we can grow three crops a year with no problem. Even in the winter, we can grow crops here. But the point is, you have to protect it from the deer. And the more we grow, the more the deer come. They're on yeah. our front porch now because of weather uh, and the, the climate. They come up on our porch and eat the aloe vera for heaven's sakes. I mean that. Wow. That's, I mean, you got a deer farm. That's why I look at that. I'll be uh, I'll be a bill tong eating fool down in San Antonio, I guess. Yeah, but you know the point is, I can't, I live in the city. I live on the. You can't uh, shoot them. Yeah. Well, yeah, I live right next to City Hall. Even though I'm on uh, many acres and a long way yeah. back, my front drive dumps onto the fire station virtually. Uh, they're, they're my next door neighbor, but they're far enough away because of the size of our property that we only hear them when they leave, and we don't hear them at all if we're in the house. So the point is we, we have tried to create for us our little haven, a little safe place to live. We decided we would bloom where we're planted. At the moment, we, we still live the preparedness lifestyle. We just aren't able to grow a crop because our dog won't change. It, it was so hot here the other day. I have to tell you this, Jack. You'll, you'll appreciate this. Uh, somebody asked me how hot it was in South Texas. So I said, the other, it's so hot here that the other day my dog was chasing some deer out of the garden, and all of them were walking. It got that oh, we're walking. <laughs> <laughs> so the only little... thing I've ever seen worse than that, I remember one day uh, a buddy of mine and I were in a Humvee in Honduras, and we were we were driving, and we stopped somewhere. I think we were, some kids were crossing the street in front of us, and we had the windows, actually the doors off, and kind of he had his arm leaning on the outside of the Humvee, and a fly landed on his arm, and then it just fell over and died. The fly <laughs> died from the heat. That, that's the worst I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> His arm was so hot for me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, I wish the cucarachas would do that around here. Well, we have so much fun. You know, it's, it's not fair that we get paid to do this. Even though, actually, we should tell people how much it costs us to do this because yeah. it, it, it's really kind of fun. It takes a lot of time. It's worth it. I think uh, the community we're reaching, is, is they, they show their gratitude by being on uh, on our chat rooms and calling in, and we appreciate that. And I want to tell, you know, again, it, it, it looks like the chat room is pretty well closed down. Nobody, they thought we were leaving. when the so gal left, too. 
Yeah, uh, we can't. They want us to have a weekend. I need to go do some shopping and some stuff to to get ready for. Uh, uh, I've got some things to do with, with my book. So I'll tell you. You saw in the chat room, people are really grateful for you, Jack, for the work you do. Uh, they're 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 very laudatory of your work. So am I. I want people to know how much I appreciate your point of view on things. Uh, I don't get any heartburn from anything you said. I appreciate your candor. I wish I had a mind as sharp as yours and a tongue as quick. I, I don't. I have to sit. I'm a writer. I'm an author. So I have to sit down. Give me give me six days, and I'll give you a perfectly phrased answer, <laughs> perfectly spelled. But uh, as far as repartee, not my strong suit, and I recognize that. But I am able to bring on people like you who have great talent, who who have good followings, people who are energetic. It, you're a different generation, and that's great because. Um, in my, I grew up knowing what privation was like. Many people, uh, 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 what are you, 40 or something like that? Yeah, I'm, just, I'm a little under 40. And yeah, so I'll tell you what's different for me, I think, is I grew up to uh, with, uh, with grandparents more than parents. And uh, I grew up with first-generation immigrants from the Ukraine. Uh-huh. And okay. um, we gardened and we did all of these things. And... Uh, they came to the United States right before uh, 1920, right after the uh, communist revolution is what drove them out of the Ukraine and the Soviet Union was formed. And uh, you learn a lot of things when you listen to older folks that have dealt with stuff like that. You learn what it is to lose your country, uh, and you learn what that means, and you learn what it is to go to the place that, in the way my grandfather put it, was the last place we could go and be free. And that makes you have a little bit more of uh, a backbone and spine and a little bit more anger when you see uh, that last place uh, maybe drifting away from where uh, it was when they came to it. it. It makes you realize that all of these things that we have today are great, microwave ovens and computers and iPods and all this stuff, but it also you don't forget They weren't always here. In fact, it wasn't that long ago that they weren't here. I'm a young guy, but I still remember when I was a little kid, my my mother took me to see one of my grandmothers working at a diner, and she asked me if I wanted some pie. And I said, sure. And she brought me this pie. She goes, do you want to heat it up? And I said, yeah, sure. So she took it away and came back in like 15 seconds, and the pie was like steaming hot. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a microwave oven in my life. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, And I went, Wow. And a kid today could, I mean, you heat up a pie in 15 seconds, he's like, why wasn't I here yesterday? <laughs> and, and I think that there's there's kind of my generation, and maybe it's really for most people, it's 10 years further back, people that are in their 50s and 60s that, that remember this stuff. And maybe it's just because I grew up kind of in a depressed area in the coal region with immigrant grandparents that, I, that maybe I got maybe a little bit more of backshadowing or something on this stuff. But that generation and that knowledge is fading, and it scares the hell out of me that it's fading because there's so much wisdom there. And, and one of the things that I plead with people, and from time to time I say on my show, and I just say just just stop and just listen in the silence. And the generations that came before us, they're telling you what you need to know if you will just shut up and turn off the computer and the iPod and the TV and the stereo for 15 minutes and listen. Your great-grandmother's telling you to take the application from MasterCard and compost the damn thing instead of going into $25,000 worth of debt with it. And all of that stuff's there, and it's already been done, and it's already been learned. And all we have to do is humble ourselves enough 
to learn it once in a while. And if we'll do that, if we'll do that, then we can take it and we can make it better. We can harness it. We take all this new stuff and we can add it to the old. But when we throw the old away and just embrace all the new and we just discard all this wisdom, the only people that we're hurting and we're lying to is ourselves because a seed still grows when you stick it in the ground. I don't care how fast your your hard drive revolves. You still don't eat if that seed doesn't grow. And if you don't water it, it ain't going to grow. And if you don't understand the process that makes that happen, and the people that do become less and less every day, and fewer and fewer people are feeding more and more people. And eventually you're going to get to a point, it's going to look just like that Soviet Union that my grandparents fled, where all the farmers are gone and dead and people are starving. And they turn on each other. And I don't ever want to see that happen. That's why I do this stuff. That's why it's so important to me. I see my job and I see your job as trying to help people have a life, to have a, be able to continue living when times get tough or, as you say, whether they don't, because times do get tough. Um, I've seen, in the last 10 years, I've seen a degradation of our society, of the attitudes of people towards things, the 24-7 stores, the fact that now the harvest season is, how quick can you pull out your credit card? You don't even have a harvest season. It's instantaneous. As long as the system works, as long as that just-in-time system performs, no problems. If I were a terrorist, terrorist, I would get my. I'd put a man on. I'd put a man with a, a bazooka on every freeway, uh, every major national freeway, and I'd just take out one truck every day until it's shut down. It'd probably take two, three days because the truckers wouldn't go until they were sure it was safe. And all you have to do, and how would you stop that? I mean, uh, that's something I've thought about too. How vulnerable we are, and and why I don't think we're being given the full truth about some of the threats that are out there. Because you could do that, yeah, that'd work real good. And if I took another dozen guys and gave them each a a Texaco card to buy gasoline with, a couple cases of uh, soda pop bottles, and a bunch of old rags, and said, "Go burn stuff." Yeah, just burn. You put together a couple groups of people like that, we could bring this country to its knees, and that's that's terrible that that's the case, and, and we don't like to look at that. We no one ever likes it's the, it's the old uh, I can't remember the, the the war colonel or general that said no one likes the sheepdog because the sheepdog yeah. looks too much like the wolf, and we don't want to look at the sheepdog and accept that the wolf's out there. But once in a while, you got to pull your head up out of the sand. You got to look at the threats that are out there and go fine. But you know what? The threats have always been there. Sometimes the threats come to pass, and sometimes they don't. But there's always been people that when the threats have come to pass have survived. And, and, and dare I say it, there's always been people that when the threats have come to pass, even though they had nothing to do with it, they were not part of the problem, thrived because they were prepared to deal with the situation the way that it is. And what I've learned by studying these people that have survived all of the cataclysmic events throughout history is they were also the people that were doing okay before something went wrong. It was never that the person that was living hand-to-mouth before the disaster did really good during and after. And it was usually not the really super you know, elite wealthy person that did really good during and after as well. It's the person that simply decided, I'm only going to be so dependent on others, and I'm going to have a certain amount of independence no matter what. Well, that person, when things start to go wrong and everybody loses their head, it's back to the old poem by Rudyard Kipling, if... You know, you keep your head when everybody's losing theirs, you'll do okay. Right. Well, I think in, in our world, being prepared gives you the opportunity to, 
to know, one, that you can handle it. Because prepared or not, you're going to have to live in the future. I try to get people, as you do, to think of some ways that they can be stable, steady, secure, and to create a, their home a safe haven. If, uh, and that's why I tell people, create in your mind uh, the concept of an in-home convenience store. You don't need a general store. You don't need a, uh, a, you don't need a big store. You just need a little convenience store that has all the conveniences you would need, whether they're paper products or canned beans or soda pop or beer or cigars or whatever turns you on. Have those things that make your life comfortable so that when the system breaks down, you can continue to live that way. But there's one additional factor, and I think both of us think it but probably haven't said it, and that is we need to make it sustainable. You do a great job in teaching people to have a sustainable backyard, uh, to have groceries they can grow. You know, you can with seeds, if you have a supply of seeds that, you, that aren't treated for, uh, for growing, you can also have fresh veggies every day simply by sprouting. Sure. Uh, that's our fallback because the deer don't come in the kitchen. They get on the porch, but they don't come in the kitchen yet. <laughs> Sounds like you need a filtered greenhouse, too. I have a greenhouse. At least you can keep them out of air. I can. I, I can do that. Um, uh, it, is, it has windows in it. I need a fan because it gets pretty darn hot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I throw screens and plywood over the over the over the panels, uh, the, the, the see-through panels, um, and I built it on the end of my barn uh, where I have my water treatment system. I put $12,000 in my water treatment system coming out of the well because I wanted to make sure that I had potable water that was safe and also have enough of it. So I put a lot of money into a pumping system, a central filtration system, a central treatment system, and now we've come up with a, we'll probably be introducing soon, maybe this will be a, a potential opportunity for you too. We have a water system that softens water without salt at all, and we can run it. We plan to take it to third world countries because we can even operate it with a solar panel. And That's we think cool. it's a neat thing. It's not cheap enough yet. We, yeah. But the thing is, it uses it, it filters water, kills the giardia and the cryptosporidium, and it cleans up uh, water. All the chemical compounds that can hurt you. It takes it all out. It's flushable. It's rechargeable, and you can buy replacement parts for it to, to get that cleans up the dirt and grunt, grunge that comes up from the bottom of some of these places. But we literally can put one out in the middle of a village, and we can three thousand people can draw water from it every day, and it'll awesome. operate with a solar panel. And yeah, you just said something, too, that I think gets overlooked by a lot of people. Let me shut my door. My dog's gone to eight for some reason. I think the squirrel's outside looking at him. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the word you just said that I think is overlooked is salt. And it's something I've mentioned from time to time and probably not enough. And I think there's a lot of preppers that have, you know, a year's worth of food and one box of salt. And uh, salt's dirt cheap until you can't get your hands on it. That's right. And it is, it is one of the most important substances. People used to get paid in salt. It used to be a currency many, many years ago. Salt and of the earth. Uh, people, yeah, uh, there's a reason for for that terminology, right? And uh, Or to say that a man isn't worth his salt. Well, for him to not be worth his salt, his salt must be actually worth salt. Something, right? yeah. I, and, I, think, I mean, from curing meat to uh, – there's a lot of stuff that we store. And you're big on with the same thing I am, which is store what you eat and eat what you store. And that's great. But – 
a lot of that stuff without salt and some seasonings and spices and stuff is pretty bland. And it's amazing how you can take something that you're like, well, I could eat it if I have to. And, and a, a sprinkling of salt, all of a sudden, the flavors that are in there that are hidden to the human taste you know, profile come out. And uh, so anything from preservation to, to, I mean, salt can be used to help disinfect wounds to – uh, preserving meat to tanning hides to, to that uh, just when you said that it made me think of that it's something I probably should mention to people more often you need well, a lot of it and it's cheap so get it now while you can yes true salt is very important uh, I tell people also honey as opposed to sugar for the same reason it has it has the capability of changing things and it's very pleasant it, it heal you can put it on wounds there are all kinds of things I, I think uh, people overlook seasonings in storage because they they don't like powdered milk because it, the way they fix it by instructions and the, the uh, manufacturer is merely trying to get the most usage out of it per pound. On the other hand, if you mix it a half again as thick, uh, put a little honey in it, put a little vanilla, vanilla flavoring, whatever, whatever your kids like. You know, what's really funny, Jack, is that a parent will say, will take, will say you know, you can't put sugar in your milk, and they'll take them out to McDonald's for breakfast, for heaven's sake. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> They put sugar in everything. Well, uh, sugar, of... When you fry sugar, it's addictive. It's as addictive as crack cocaine, honestly. <laughs> it is, and half of America is either addicted to uh, sugar. Uh, and it's a funny thing about sugar. Sugar is not addictive alone, but when you combine it with uh, fat and carbohydrate, it's extremely addictive. Uh, if you're not addicted to that, you're addicted to, to tobacco in the form of uh, conventional cigarettes. And, you know, it was funny. We had Native Americans, Indians, whatever you want to call them, if you want to get politically correct, I guess they're uh, Native North Americans here, um, that were – tobacco was a huge part of their society, but yet they weren't killing over from lung cancer. Well, why? Because they smoked it in pipe form and – and we take everything that's out in nature that's halfway decent and we destroy it by modernizing it and make it quote-unquote better. Um, so we take tobacco, which is a natural product, and we dry it till it's bone crisp dry. We put it in a narrow little cigarette. We smoke it at extremely high temperatures, and we convert it into something that causes cancer. Where if we would have just left it alone the way – and you have to ask yourself that. Why weren't the Comanche and the Cherokee and the Lakota Sioux falling over and dying from lung cancer? Why weren't they addicted? Why could they, like, smoke one day and then not smoke for three months? Well, because they didn't change things, and that's not really like a tobacco advocacy or anti-advocacy thing. It's just it's a constant. I believe there's constants in every. I don't think there's anything new out there. All we do is just keep replicating patterns, and that pattern's the same in everything. We take something like sugar cane, which actually has a purpose and is useful, and we can squeeze some juice out of it and sweeten some things with it. No, we got to refine it into refined sugar. Um, we take something like honey, which is a nature's perfect sweetener. Oh, that's not good enough. We got to go get refined sugar. If we would just stick to the things that are provided for us, it would be amazing how many of our problems would just go away. Uh, maybe then we wouldn't be trying to create national health care systems to prevent illnesses and the injuries that society has caused for itself. I don't know. Well, you know, back in my grandfather's time, uh, or great grandfather actually, and I, I didn't know him, but I heard a lot about it. When people died, they di- they died of uh, heart trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was always on their desk, heart trouble. Uh, their uh, uh, their heart, you know their heart stopped and they were in trouble. 
And as a result, that was what. Now you have how many? 10,000 diseases, 10,000 ways you can die. But still, sure. until the heart stops, you ain't dead. You ain't <laughs> so it's really interesting to see that we, we've complicated life to the point that where we have, have to have a diagnosis for everything. And uh, the menus of life are getting really complicated. And it makes it harder and harder for some of us older folks to, to cope with this. Uh, they give me a telephone today, I pay 385 bucks for it. It, it still runs down in six hours, and I still have to charge it overnight. And yeah, it'll take photos, it'll record, it'll do. It's a it'll it'll do moving pictures there if I knew how to do it. Well, the brain power, the brain pain it gives me trying to learn that stuff. My goodness, Jack, my VCR is still blinking 12, 12, 12, 12. 12. I can tell you how to and fix it, that. I've had it eight years. I'll tell you how to fix that, James. Go get yourself some electrical tape. Yeah. Right? And get yourself about a three-inch long piece of electrical tape. <laughs> put it right over the part where the 12's blinking, and you'll never see it again. Because I don't need my VCR to tell me what time it is. I, I understand. And I don't need it to tell me what channel to watch. I mean, it's just interesting that all yeah. these conveniences drive us. We're, we're, we're made aware of everything that somebody else wants us to do. And I react to that. I respond to that in a way that says, I don't want to be run by an alarm clock. I don't want to be run by a schedule. The show schedule, okay, I'll stick with it because they're rules. Sure. And it's their rules, and I'll play with it. But we're able to move. We can continue on, fortunately, and talk about these things, have a little fun. Uh, unfortunately, everybody has hung up uh, because they thought we were gone, but next, we'll tell them next time at the top of the show. Uh, and, but they'll, when the recordings... Uh, they'll be able to hear this. By the way, you know, you do hold the top. Uh, you had over 12, 1,247 downloads. I call it 1,250, so I can remember it. But 1,247 downloads in your last visit. Your closest competitor, <laughs> the one coming close, was about 750, 757, something like that, uh, uh, as of the cutoff today. That was the last group that was on, three lady preppers. The, pre lady pre the preppers organization is doing really well. Have you connected with them? Uh, I, I don't think I have. I probably need to have them on my show. I've started to do interviews, and anybody that listens to the archive or or what have you, this. Let me uh, send you the reference. Get in touch with them and everything. Yeah, that'd be great. And I, awesome. Heck, I'd like to have you come on my show as well, James. I think we could do. I'm sorry we didn't work stuff. it out last time. I was going through the the closing of the, uh, getting the book to the uh, publisher for. Uh, for the final, you know, to, so that they would have a copy to work And I on. was double stacking them that week. That was the week before I went out to California. Sure, yeah, I understand that. And I apologize. And for I that. just didn't want to. I, what I, the big thing there is I didn't want to leave my people for a week with no show. So I did two shows a day for five days, and my brain hurt by the time that was over with. Oh, and most people don't know how much prep time it takes to do this. You and I were texting yeah. each other for, what, an hour and a half trying to make yeah. sure we were we were spot on. and. And, and and I appreciate I really appreciate Jack that you take the time to come on. I, I I've been doing this a long time. Uh, as I tell people, at one time I was very popular. Uh, still, we still get both of us still get good press. Fortunately, we both have good. We moved from from zero to number three out of the fifteen hundred plus on the family side in fifteen weeks. Well, that's awesome, did. man. That, and that tells you that people want. They want to know, know. stuff, right? That's what That's people like. How did your show take off the way it did? Because I put it in the hands of the people that listen to it. Uh, I can't even take. You know, I can't even take a sponsor, unless I've got like thirty-five moderators on my forum now. They're all listeners that eventually step up and say, "I'll help keep things in line on the forum." I can't even take a sponsor unless those people are okay with it. I have no control over that. That's crazy. 
but it <laughs> makes crazy. people get what they want, right? You give them what they demand. Actually, that's what selling is about. You sell what people want to buy. Yeah. Uh, tried to teach industry that as a consultant for many years. Don't try to sell your widget. Sell what the people want to buy. If, it, if it's not your widget, find a widget they want and, and put it in the color they want. And as a result, I was successful as a consultant. I was always in marketing on the marketing side of consultation, but it was good. But, Jack, I have you on because you, one, you're outspoken, you're straight, you speak straight, uh, you tell it like it is, and you've learned some pretty important lessons. I imagine if I'd known you two, three years ago, you wouldn't be as aware of things as you are today. Uh, and I really appreciate that awareness. I appreciate the fact that you that you are able to take common problems and turn them into common solutions because most people don't do that. They start fixing, getting special fixes for things that don't need special fixes. Actually, our system would work very well if we played within the rules that we already have. Uh, one of the comments you made is that every, and I really appreciate it, is when, when people, when we give government power, we give away our, our, our what is it, our, our freedom. Our liberty. I mean, that's, Liberty, yeah, freedom, liberty. I, I, God, I, you, I, I do not understand how the average person doesn't ask that question. If we are going to allow government to do anything, and I'm not even saying that what we're going to let them do is wrong or that we shouldn't do it, but God, please, before we say okay, please ask the question, what liberty is sacrificed? In return for power, because you cannot cannot have one without the other. If I give you an authority over me, James, I say, James, you now have authority over when I eat my breakfast. I've given up my freedom to choose to eat my breakfast at 11.30 in the afternoon uh, because Jack in the Box serves it all day, and I want to just for one day out of the year live a little crazy and go out and eat biscuits and gravy from a fast food joint at 11.30. Maybe I shouldn't even do it. In fact, I know I shouldn't do it, and you know I do it maybe twice a year. But once in a while, it ain't going to kill you. And, and that's just a, a common example, but every time you enact someone else having a power you compromise the liberty and there's a myth i believe in our in our educational system today that the united states is a nation of laws i don't believe that we're a nation of laws i believe that we're a nation of liberties and the purpose of the laws in our nation is to preserve our liberties so if we make a law that says jack spirico can't go steal james stevens's car it's not to take away my liberty to steal your car. It's to preserve your liberty to own your car. So every law that we should be passing, if we, I don't know that we need any more because I think we got plenty of them now. But anytime we pass a law, it should be about the preservation of liberty, not the restriction of liberty. And that has, especially in the last 30 years, flipped on its head. And it's because the, the, the goal of this nation and every generation to make the next generation safer, more wealthy, et cetera, has come true. And eventually we've gotten to a point where we've wallowed in our own opulence to a point where we want everything taken care of. So if I, get, if I want you to take care of things for me, then I have to advocate my individual choice to you. And, and frankly, I've gotten to the point, uh, as, as it says, and I'm not a religious guy or anything, but I do quote truth wherever I hear it, and it says in the, there's one line in the Bible somewhere, to hither thou shalt come and no further. And that's where I'm at. I'm done. I, yep. hey, we're fine, fine where you are now, but we ain't going no further. You ain't getting no more. You've got enough. That's that's you know my my view is that the government is a big kid 
stealing cookies out of the cookie jar, and from now on, the hand comes in the jar, gets slapped, and back out. No more. Well, he's the big kid on the playground, and if somebody puts him in his place, he's going to continue to push you around and, and bludgeon you. I, I, I'm totally, totally amazed at how quickly, how quickly the changes that were promised have happened, and all of a sudden people are realizing that these changes are not good. No. I, I think they, too many things happen too quickly uh, before people realize that all of a sudden the, the changes that were promised, I don't know if he, they were the ones that were on the agenda, but as it were, when we started bailing out banks and started saving companies from bankruptcy, which is the way the company, how we used to cure problems, we cured disease when the diseased people died. You yeah. Know, that's, yeah. That, we, that disease went away with them. <laughs> and uh, we're now trying to cure everybody of, of, every, uh, of everything except the guy who has the money. We don't care about him. And I'm thinking there's something wrong with the picture. When you, We're becoming an entitled society where everybody has an entitlement, and nobody wants their, uh, wants, their, uh, wants to be goosed. Uh, they all want to be able to continue with their entitlements. And the thing is, the entitlements are going to people who aren't contributing to the system. And, and I'll probably be investigated by some agency. Well, I'm sure you and I are on every list that they have, you know, and that, that's fine. The last, when we were doing the preparedness thing during the Y2K, we had preparedness expos. We traveled around the country, a whole bunch of us. Uh, I sold my book. I went to sell my book uh, to, to the people who were working there, but I had a prime position because I was at every one of them, and everywhere we went in each different part of the country, I would solicit new people to carry my book, and that's why I sold so many is that I had people selling my book for me. I didn't worry about making all the money on each individual sale. I figured sure. if, I could get, if I could make a little bit off every book and somebody else could make uh, a lot off the book, that was okay with me because Zig Ziglar said it best. He's one of your local yokels. He says, you know, if you if you give help people get what they want, you can have anything you want. Sure, sure. Well, I agree with that 100%. And, and I've tried to... Uh, for example, when you come on, I don't interrupt you. Uh, if, it, if there's a dead space, I can get a word in it. Or I have to ask a question, I will, or summarize it. Uh, fine, but I let you know, you rave on for ten minutes. It's okay with me because they came to hear you. In my opinion, not me. I, how many times you've been interviewed when the broadcaster said, "Well, little, little, he's gone for fifteen minutes." He said, "Is that right?" And you, you're supposed to say yes or no and let him go on again. Yeah. And I, I had to learn how to step in and say. Well, some people think that way, and then I would, could go into an explanation, and you could just hear them fuming. Yeah. You, could, you, you know, know where they get crazy with me? They bring me on, like I go on a radio show or something, and they'll uh, they'll say, you know, well, tell us about modern survivalism, and as soon as I start talking about debt, yeah. they're like, well, we didn't, we didn't, you know, basically they steer you off because it's like, and I understand they're trying to fill their agenda. It's like, that's not what we brought you here. People want to hear about storing food and, and backup energy sources and stuff like that, but... You know what? If you're laden with debt, it ain't going to work. And I'll always ham, ham, you know, hold my ground on it to a degree because it's a core fundamental to my philosophy, and the rest of it won't work without it. But you're right. A lot of folks, when you get involved with any type of uh, anything that's about them, they, they they're they're more about shaping it. I even had a, recently had an opportunity to be on uh, Good Morning America, which is a pretty damn big show and a pretty good piece of exposure. But the guy on there, when I was talking to him, the producer said, well, I have this one family, and they had a huge pantry, and I got what I needed from them. And I went, you know what? We're done. <laughs> We're done. I can't help you because you don't want to hear the truth about the way things are. 
you have a thing you're trying to fill, and that's fine, and that's your goal, and that's your agenda, and go on, and God bless you, and I hope you do a great segment, but it won't be at my expense because yeah. I'm not going to come on and be something false to give you what you need. Right, uh, and many times I don't do – I did a lot of TV at once, and then I realized that all they want to do is ask questions and try to make you squirm. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So if they can do that. So I'm looking for some friend. you know, what I'm trying to do is build an organization uh, that adapts to other people's styles because how many different ways are there to live? I mean, you've got a style. You, uh, I can't grow a garden. I cannot grow a garden with the animals that live out here in the woods where I live. they'll eat it. Well, yeah, I have everything from skunks to, to possums to armadillos, and I cannot build a structure. Or the snakes. I mean, it doesn't matter. Uh, they took all my chickens. Um, oh, wow. With my road schedule, I cannot. I'm gone half the time. I cannot be gone and feed these animals. They own me. And so yeah. I had to make a decision between the goats and the chickens and whether or not I could go out and help people. And Maybe you my, need a deep hole. With a false covering to uh, make the deer disappear down there. <laughs> I mean, you're gonna be uh, there's just too much venison out there to not be eating some of it. You got to figure out something there. Let them get fat. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're skinny right now around here because there's not a lot of water, and yeah. uh, we 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 actually put water in a trough for them. We're empathic to them. We live in the city limits, but yeah. it's a small town. We have no businesses in town. You can have a home business, but you can't have a retail business here, gotcha. except for one restaurant. One very high-end restaurant that was here before the city was, and so they wrapped around it. It's called the Gray Moss Inn, and it's a great old place. It's well-known. It's historical, and it's been there for 85 years or more, longer than that. And and so nobody messes with them. Uh, They're the only business real estate in the whole town, and it's five miles to the nearest service station. And it's great, Jack, because, you know, somebody's going to have to find me. Yeah, I have a street address, but they've got to find me. They've got to get 660 feet of driveway. That uh, that doesn't come straight up to the house. Uh, I've got a lot of large trees, and I had a big. I, like you, I lost my dog last week. Um, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Really, it was hard. Uh, he just got to the point where his heart was giving out, and he just had no more energy, and this heat was killing him. So we had to. We took him to the doctor. He said he's got a week at most. I said, well, yeah. let's do what we have to do. And so it was. It was tough. I. I, I, I wasn't that impact you know, I, I felt sorry for what you went through, but I went through the same thing this last week. Yeah, so I do know what it's like. Love my dog. His name was Buddy. I mean, how do you, how do you give a friend called Buddy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, he's now on our mantle, and uh, we'll, you know, we'll always remember Buddy because he was a greatly. Ju- he's the one that would walk and chase the. In fact, he got the way he didn't even chase him. He said, I can't catch him. Why? He'd walk after him. <laughs> He'd just watch him eat the groceries. Uh, life was good. Well, well listen, I'll tell you I'm... what we did, and uh, it was suggested by a listener, and I think it was a great way to remember a good friend. We took one of our favorite pictures of him, and uh, our, our our dog, Lakota, that we lost about a month and a half ago, and uh, they had it made into a nice 8x10 and put it in a nice frame and hung it up on the wall and took his collar and hung it off the corner of the picture. And, uh, yep. You know, I think we'll do that every time we lose a friend from here on out because they do become part of the family. They're, they're family. We had Buddy eight. We gave him an extra eight and a half years. We uh, the kids, uh, one the grandkids had him when he was a little puppy. and They called him Pooh Bear because he's a cute little furry thing, and he yeah. grew up into an eighty-five pound dog. Well, by the time he was four months old, he was putting his his feet up on their shoulders and pushing them <laughs> down, not me, you know, just being friendly with them. Yeah. He thought he was he was an eighty-five pound lap dog. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> break your bones when he gets in your lap. So uh, we 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 miss him, but we 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 preserved him in the uh, the only way we could. There's no place to bury him here, so we had him uh, uh, we had him shrunk to ashes, and yep. he came back to us on a neat little cedar box with a beautiful memoriam on it. And so we we put that on the mantle to remember by because he was part of the family. But we gave him a few extra years he wasn't going to get when my daughter was on the way to the pound with him. He was a wild dog. We spent a lot of money getting him because he was with three kids, and then he was with just two old folks. It was a yep. whole world difference. <laughs> and out in the country with no fencing. So I ended up spending thousands of dollars for a fence. <laughs> but we needed a fence anyway. I thought they yep. could but I was stupid. I learned the hard way. Two things they didn't tell me when you moved in the neighborhood. One, you had to have six-foot fence, and you had to have a truck. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. I didn't have a truck, so it's been a it's been a hard life. Jack, we, I, we, I know I'm keeping you from important stuff. I want to uh, I thank you for your time, for your interest, for your charming personality. You've been a delight to have. Anytime we can get you, I'd love to have you. Um, anything we can do to help you, I truly hope that uh, people will go to your site and buy the book because it'll it, it'll it'll help you. It'll help me help you, and I want to do that. Yeah. Uh, we are over invested in the book, as you can appreciate. When it got to 500 pages, the cost of printing went sky high. Yeah, I bet it did. Because I've been looking at the cost of that myself. But yes, yeah, I do need I do need to uh, to break off with you now. But uh, my plans actually are to go have a spot of lunch, and uh, I'm gonna take my old black Labrador, my dog that's still around, and we're gonna go hang out at the Dove Field this evening because it's Dove season now, and uh, hey, and get us some dinner. Well, thank Jack. Thank you. I appreciate you very much. Stay in touch. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know from around the time if you can. I'll ask you if you can come on. I appreciate when you can. Will do. If, if I can help you, I'm certainly glad to do so. Thank you. I'm going to sign off. I will give the final and get out of here. All right. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate you. Bye. Bye. This has been the Family Preparedness Guide Talk Show from San, from outside San Antonio in Gray Forest. Uh, I'm James Thomas Stevens, the author of Making the Best of Basics. I've had on. With me for the last couple of hours, Jack Spearco, one of the firebrands of the industry and one of the great guys you all should be listening to on his thesurvivalpodcast.com. Go there, listen up. He's on every week. You can get his recordings, get on his uh, uh, download list. So they're always there. Archive them. Listen to them when you can. I listen to them. I really like the way he goes about things. I don't always agree. But I don't always agree with Rush Limbaugh or any other talk show host, but they make me think, and that's what you have to do in order to make it when times get tough. Or whether they don't, as Jack says.